Hey there, kiddos. Back for some more of the places beyond the maps. Okay, first things first. Did you guys figure out what scripture I was uh, hinting around at? That talks about justice, but also something outside of justice. I was kind of, might not have been a very good description. I might not have given you enough information, but... I was thinking of Micah chapter 6 verse 8 and I will read the ESV version has he told you O man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God and most other translations say he has shown you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So most other translations say to love mercy. Do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So that's what I was getting at. And if you came up with Micah 6.8, good job. Sorry, I didn't give you very, uh, didn't give you too many more hints. So, we are starting the third part, the third chapter of this book here. And we went over the man's new vow, or a renewed oath that he had broken before and he renewed it on these terms I swear by my daughter's death that I will seek you out O maker I will assault your high summit and there I will demand you give answer for my loss oh boy okay so we're starting if wishes were horses you would be surprised how much a man can accomplish once he gives up hope. That's the quote from Colonel Quintress Trollander. As morning dawned, the man reluctantly adjusted his course in a hard southerly bend to avoid overtaking the Fang Patrol in the weeks to come. He had dispensed with only one of those fell spawn in his brief career as an outlaw, but... He was then a man desperate to recover the child he had believed was still alive, still in terror, and still in reach of ransom. Hope and fear had rendered him rash so that he risked all for her return in a great casting of the dice and came up empty. Though his own life had not been forfeited for it, scant consolation that it was. He had grown more hardened in the grappled wayfaring that followed, and his form and frame had reworked themselves more resilient in those lean months. But still the man was no inveterate warrior and did not fancy himself as such. He would not now seek confrontation with a dozen of the despicable lizards, for he knew the outcome of such a meeting. The trade-off for avoiding them and remaining unseen now 
was that he must at last abandon his reliable water source and trust that springs and pools could be found further south as well. Wishing to keep all ledgers balanced and to be no more beholden than he must to any man, he had weeks before declined the bard's kindly offer to repair his journey boots. In less than two days' walk now, he felt sorely the folly of his pride. The toe of one boot had been pierced through by the diggle so that water entered it from stream and rain, and the soles of both were wearing so thin that his feet, which had softened in the last weeks of his rest and recovery with the bard, became more and more blistered and bruised by the miles he crossed. Within days, the more southerly course took him out of sight of any woodlands and into a land of wet weather gulches and barren scrub. The stark hills were stony, weather-swept rises that jutted up sheer from the land, revealing bright and layered swaths of red and umbers and yellows and purples. The slow unfolding dreams of old geologies splayed upon a dry, gashed land. Shatterings of flint and pumice filled vast tracks, cutting hills like waterless cataracts halted in their sharp cascades. Some paths were impassable. Others demanded in payment for passage some diminishing of leather, some bruising of the flesh, some sluicing of crewer. Wait a second, I gotta look up that word. Some sluicing of crewer. I've never seen that word before. Hold on one second, please. And I'm back. Okay, so crewer, C R U O R, is a noun, and it's the gore, coagulated blood, or the coloring matter of the blood. The clotted portion of co coagulated blood containing the color matter. And cruar. Interesting. Never heard that word before. Okay, so anyways. Sorry, back to the book. Some paths were impassable. Others demanded in payment for passage some diminishing of leather, some bruising of flesh, some sluicing of crewer. He stumbled and started and sent sliding clinks of rock behind him that chimed like ceramics till their capricious physics were played out against more entrenched tessellations further below. All right, I don't know what tessellations means either. One second. Okay, I think I got it. So he's sending rocks downhill and their capricious physics just meaning that they're trundling and bouncing and sliding were played out against more entrenched tessellations and according to the dictionary tessellation is a geometric pattern or mosaic so apparently there were rocks in patterns down below. Okay. 
He used the dagger to accept leather strips from the bottom hem of his cloak. And wrapping them round his palms, he navigated tenuous and motile terrains configure, configured on hand and foot like a man enchanted by sunlight to form a half-beast. He crossed miles of prospect laced with formations as slick and sharp as broken glass that warbled in the curving designs of hardened liquids. And these crazed rock fields so shredded the casings of his boots and flayed the soles to near uselessness that by the time he reached less hostile territories, his injuries were already profound. His boots remained, but as ragged remnants dyed dark with his own blood, soaked and dried and stained, and soaked and dried and stained again. He cut more strips from the hem of his cloak and wrapped these hard round his feet to shore them against the disintegration of the boots. But this new remedy came with fresh excoriations, with the leather strips chafed in places previously untouched, so that distended and cloudy blains emerged within hours upon his skin, like moons pressed hard against their own risings by horizons malignant and thick. The heat of the days wore him steadily down so that he could, so that he could not take rest in any coolness but night and the misery of his feet was enough that he woke up from his light sleeps, deviled and exhausted. It seemed a land designed either to kill men or to spit them out, for there was no shelter and no shade in all of that baked expanse. Even when the blisters that staked his feet began to break open and to rub into raw ulcerations against the blood and salt-soaked leather of his boots, he marched grimly on, for he knew himself to be a trespasser in those waterless wastes, and unsuited for survival in them. And so he hobbled along, gritting his teeth against the torment of his abscessed wheels, tilting his head into the wind so that the brim of the hat shielded his eyes against the intermittent blast of volant sands. Unwilling then either to beg for mercy or to relinquish his quest. If you're trying to keep me from reaching you, he finally muttered against a hot wind that swept north from some distant desert. It won't work. You'll have to kill me. Limping to the edge of a storm gulch two afternoons following, and thinking to slide down the sandy side and shelter there to escape the high heat of the day, he spied in that deep red rift a saddled and bridled horse, tangled by reins and thorny scrub that jutted like horns from the hard, arid walls. There was a dark stain of old, dried blood on the saddle, and an arrow shaft protruding from the leather padding at a skewed angle. The horse was white or pale, but layered with a red dust, and was laid on its side, so he thought it was dead at first, 
and wondered if it might be either fresh enough to scavenge for meat or preserve enough to scavenge for preserved enough to scavenge for leather. But at his approach, the animal raised its head and tried in alarm and in vain to stand. The man shielded his eyes to the sun and surveyed the open scrubland for miles in every direction. And seeing no movement, he maneuvered himself over the edge and slid down into the gulch, knelt beside the horse at last, and slipped the bridle from its mouth then loosened the saddle cinch and removed that too along with a saddle bag half full of dried groats he was pleased to see that the arrow had angled sharply enough into the saddle that it had hardly penetrated the horse's skin and the wound had already closed itself in a knotted scar he left the horse where it lay and explored the ravine downward wincing at every step, and found at last in the bottom of it the water he sought. <coughs> Excuse me. In his upturned hat he fetched drink from a small spring pool and carried it a quarter mile back to the horse. He was well acquainted with the care of livestock from his own rural childhood and immediately judged the horse a fine animal despite its sorry condition. The owner had likely been affluent once, at least before abandoning, abandoning his or her former life to challenge these forsaken spaces. The creature's owner was also likely dead, felled by an arrow as black as the one the man now worked free from the saddle. Else, why would the horse have been alone and perishing here? It had probably smelled the water and been searching for it when the rains had become entangled. The man built a sheltering roof of scrubwood across the ravine over the beast to shield it from the worst of the sun, and every couple of hours he brought it another hatful of water, pacing the hydration, knowing that a thirsting horse offered too much water at once might drink itself to death. The next morning he was able to coax the beast to stand, and he led it to the small pool without use of a bridle. The grateful creature followed him down the gulch like any trained hound. He squatted to watch it drink, and then it raised its head and shook its pale mane and looked at him. The man pulled up a clump of dry, weedy grass and offered it to the horse, and the horse took it and ground it between its flat teeth, then nosed round and found another clump on its own. I know you've been ridden before, the man said, but I'll give you a few days yet. He eased his boots off, teeth gritted against the raw friction of the leather and eased his bloodied feet into the pool. The spring water had the taint and taste of minerals, and a whitish deposit rimmed round, round its edges. Perhaps there would be healing properties in it. 
He soaked his wounds for an hour and then walked the horse slowly back up the ravine to the shelter. He opened the feed bag and poured out a small mound of groats, which the horse munched up greedily, then nosed the feed bag. You'll get more tomorrow, the man said and patted the animal's soft muzzle. He rationed the groats for two more days, soaking his feet in the mineral pool many times and feeling his heart strangely stirred at the desolate night cries of limber wolves and filch darters beneath the clear starry skies on the chill nights. The horse would lay down to sleep, and the man took to reclining with his back against its belly and welcomed the shared warmth which was a benefit to both. He spoke and sang to the horse softly and appreciated the companionship, and when he thought the horse was asleep, memories of his daughter rose like shapes in the shimmer of heat released from the sands around him, for he thought how she would have loved the horse, and he reached into his pocket and drew forth the silk tricorn and clenched it and rehearsed aloud his sworn oath as if that silken creature or somehow the legend whose image it echoed might be summoned to bear witness in that desert night. And then he returned it to his pocket and slept. The saddlebags had contained other sundries as well as the groats, a long coil of rope, several rocks of salt, a tattered and illegible map, a soot-grimed tobacco pipe, a spring-loaded trap for snagging small game, and a sturdy needle and a spool of stiff thread, ample for the amateur repair of the man's boots, which he patched with mending strips of leather cut from his cloak. They rode up out of the gully, headed north, and in two days they found streams and woodland again, and over the next month, the horse grew fat on marsh grass, and the riding allowed the man's feet to quickly heal, now calloused over where they had once been so raw. The man could see no visible progress day to day, but after the first two weeks of riding, the ground began to incline gradually. In his third week in the company of the horse, he woke on a bald hilltop. The haze of the morning had burned away, and in a remarkably clear refraction of light, he sighted in the distance what might have been the blued serrations of a mountain ridge, placed at some infinite remote, at some infinite remove, and his resolve strengthened again, and he knew what he must do. Though he could not judge the distance, whether it was a hundred miles, or a thousand miles, or a thousand lifetimes away. And though he looked for it each sunrise and sunset afterward, he did not sight the mountain again that season. They explored the terrain even further west and made camp in a region of wide and verdant hills. His mount relished the tender green shoots of grass emerging in thick clumps amongst the hill dips 
and also the small, tight buds of a crimson flower the man had never before seen. The man pulled hundreds of wild onions and harvested the last of the bright red crambleberries from their thorny thickets. He carved a straight shaft from the trunk of a small hardwood and bound his silvered blade to the end of it, and then spent days hunting speedy flobbits by spear from his horseback and roasting them three at a time and smoking some of the meat to preserve for the remainder of his journey. He became strangely adept at intuiting when one of the cantankerous varmints in its headlong flight was about to cut, cut left or dart right. There was a pattern to it that he could sense but could not articulate. They made camp there several days and both the man and the horse grew fatter. They afterward resumed their bellicose pilgrimage, pushing further west toward the shimmering rumor of mountain he believed he had sighted, but which he had not yet which had not yet curved round the horizon toward toward him to allow for any stark delineation. Along the way were wonders the man had never heard rumor of. Great plumes of steaming water that blasted upward from barren rock. Small, silverish creatures that looked as if they were made of molten metal and slid over rocky terrain like dripping rivulets. Swarms of glowing night moths that numbered in the millions and wrought the fields strange with luminance where there should have been shadow, so that it seemed as if he rode at times the underside of some other world in which darkness shone, and those things too solid for darkness to pass through cast about them instead of shadows. Cast about them instead shadows of fluttering light. One night the man and horse were followed by a dozen lithe limber wolves more inquisitive than aggressive, and the man gripped his blade, unsheathed and kept alert to their movements in the field, but was more curious of the bearing of the pale horse when it was asked to hold its nerve in such a hostile surround. The horse rolled its eyes and laid its ears back, but trusted the man's calming voice and did not spook and after more than a league of such tense company, the wolves caught some other scent and wheeled away to the north, leaving the travelers to their journey. They slept that night in a meadow illumined by night moths, and when they set out the next morning, they crossed into a dead forest of blackened, moistureless trees and rode in it for three days till the horse's hooves were smutted by the passage over an, an endless carpet of ash that muffled all sound in that stillness. They slept in the ash, and they breathed in the ash, and they saw no creature stir in that gray place, save for an unkindness of ravens alighting on spindly branches from which dark cinders dispersed and floated downward like snow misremembered. The man had begun almost to entertain the possibility that they now walked 
an eternal shadowland of death that would stretch to the world's rim. When, without gradation one morning, they stepped beyond the stark border of that place and passed again into bright lands cool and shimmering with a now almost unbearable greenness, though the season was late and already near its turning. They soon found themselves plying a corridor of violent weathers such that morning might break pleasant, and at noon one might be overtaken by great walls of windswept dust that curtained the sky and bleared the sun to a dim whiteness. Behind these dust storms, at evening the temperatures could plunge mercilessly amidst a great dumping of rain and hail that assaulted all living things, unable to find shelter, and then the next day might break pleasant again, as if begging for another chance to be trusted. The man and the horse traveled west when they could, and sheltered from the dust and the storms when they had to, and their progress was slowed, but remained steady. The lone fendril bent the sky repetitively round in its glorious coursings, and the man once heard its piercing cry spilling down from some invisibility in the high tumult of clouds. Months turned upon the great wheel of seasons, and for an insensate span the man simply existed, surviving as a wild creature among wild creatures, and he indulged in no conscious thought of the formal, former things, and made no effort to divine meaning from his griefs, and he no longer drew the tricorn from its place in the depths of his pocket. He obliged his mind instead to ponder nothing save the immediate burdens of shelter and sustenance and considered the days to come as beyond his knowing and therefore of no consequence. He would turn his attentions again to the one mountain when he reached it. Until then, all that mattered was the surviving of the journey. Having dulled himself to the pangs of hope and disappointment alike, the man also no longer gave thought to whether he was happy or sad. He was simply alive, one of the many parts of a landscape that was both hostile and eloquent. He survived, and the horse with him, and for a time, as he journeyed ever further west, that was enough. He relinquished many of his former human comforts, sleeping, sleeping often without fire, and sometimes waking soaked by dew, and eating without revulsion locusts and larvae, and the flesh of things that had not been cooked. And there were long stretches of days when he could not have conjured the image of his own daughter's face if he had tried. Perhaps especially if he had tried. 
The chill suggestion of a hard winter had already swept over low hills to swirl around them as a thin layer of white and beaded sleet. And the man understood that to be caught unsheltered in this windswept landscape would mean almost certain death at the, at the first furious and blinding winter storm. And so he had already begun to search for a suitable winter camp that would afford natural protection from wind and cold when they chanced suddenly upon a lonely, abandoned structure hidden by an overgrowth of scrubby trees. It was small and round and constructed of dark, stacked stone and wood, and there were three arched doorways without doors. In the now brambled courtyard of the structure, he saw that a well had been dug, and the mouth was covered by a flat, square-cut stone. The man called out, and there was no answer, so he dismounted to scavenge the ruins of the place for anything useful, but he first shoved back the stone and drew up water for the horse and for himself, and it was sulfurous to taste, but seemed drinkable. When he entered the structure, he saw that the roof was mostly caved in, and that a dense, a dense clod of tiny brown bats had colonized the underside of the topmost beam, and these were now surveilling him with dark, globose eyes and swaying like witches' pendants in their agitation. The place stank of something foul, and fat green flies lit everywhere on the floor and walls. Low rails were fixed to the floor and arced round a central stone that was either pedestal or crude altar, and behind that plinth rested something large and covered with a rough canvas cinched round with rope. The man drew his blade and saw through the rope and pulled away the coarse covering. Ensconced beneath it was a hideous, man-sized black stone sculpture of a crouched fang, with its claws raised and its jaws splayed wide, and its forked tongue extended to its feet in horrible exaggeration. The man felt fingers of fear wrapping his spine and wondered what manner of place he had stumbled into. He looked round, but he could not long abide the maniac stare of this gruesome figure, and so he cut short his exploration and retreated again to the untended courtyard. He drew the cold air into his lungs and saw then with clarity the deed that was in his hands to do, and so he took his rope and tied an end round the saddle pommel, and then he re-entered the strange ruin. Uncoiling, uncoiling the rope as he went, and he wound a noose at the other end and slung this over the head of the stone fang and cinched it tight round the neck. Returning to the horse, he took it by the bridle and asked it to walk, and the horse stepped forward till the slack was taken up, and then, understanding that there was a load to be moved, it heaved into the resistance until the carved figure 
dislodged and toppled so that it cracked against the floor stones and shattered into three pieces. The man left the arms and body where they lay, but the grim head he rolled to the well and cast it in, and then he covered the well again with the flat stone, and he rode away from that unholy place, shaking his head at the idiocy of men who would prostrate themselves even to their own nightmares. Ooh, who's he talking about there? I'm going to read that last sentence again. The man left the arms and body where they lay, but the grim head he rolled to the well and cast it in, and then he covered the well again with the flat stone, and he rode away from that unholy place, shaking his head at the idiocy of men who would prostrate themselves even to their own nightmares. Hmm. Sounds like he's thinking back to when the fangs invaded his own home. All right, kiddos, I'm going to stop there for the evening. Um, I'll pick up another time. I love you guys very much. Thanks for listening. Um... This is quite a different book than we've ever read before. So let's just see what this author is trying to teach us here about this man and his journey and his vows he's been uh, following. Okay, get some good sleep. I love you, kiddos. I will catch you all next time. Night-night.